Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, nothing to wait through, just talking mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number 10 of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before we get into this issue, the standard spoiler warning applies. If you haven't read this issue or any part of the past Mage comic series, I'd recommend stopping listening right now. Just go read the books. I promise that I'm going to spoil this issue and parts of past issues from the Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally. No um, pre-show notes or observances here, so why don't we just dive right in. So to start, just a reminder... In issue number 9, Kevin Matchstick had taken down an entire Redcap tribe, but really, aside from getting his revenge on them for kidnapping his son, he gets precious little information in return, other than that uh, Hugo was delivered to some group called the White Ones. After that, Kevin and Miranda visit Isis, Magda's sister, who tries unsuccessfully to reach Magda through magical means, but she assures Kevin that she is still alive. Afterwards, she declines to keep an eye on Miranda, so this leaves Kevin in the position, somewhat precariously, of having to take the battle to some unknown enemy with a young child at risk, which is kind of awkward. Now, they leave Isis's dimensionally enhanced place, and really you have to see this place to believe it, as Kevin admits to Miranda that he really has no idea where they're going next. The Gracklethorns spent most of issue 9 arguing, the majority of the sisters assuming that Kevin Matchstick will be easily defeated, but Carol Gracklethorn is the lone descending voice. Her insistence is in a way reminiscent of a Mill Gracklethorn in The Hero Discovered. Now, his talent was initiative, and he, he certainly took initiative when he bashed the Umbra Sprite's head in with his magical pot plant, or potted plant. Same difference, really. Speaking of the Umbra Sprite, she, it, has gone all to pieces, literally, turned into a mass of what Matt Wagner calls shadow snakes in the wake of feeling a familiar presence. Other than Carol, the thorns seem content to stay the course and, really pointedly, not plan for any possible future clashes while the Umbra Sprite is indisposed and unavailable. This is the second time in the series that the Umbra Sprite has been gone, out of commission. The first time was right after it summoned Arishkagel, the Sumerian goddess, and that absence lasted for at least a year. Last but certainly not least, we spent some time with Kevin's sorceress wife Magda and his son Hugo. They were mostly stuck cooling their heels in their very posh, four-star suite-slash-prison. Magda took advantage of the time to educate Hugo a bit about their situation and confirm that she still has possession of uh, the protection potion, mostly thanks to their captor's fairly arrogant assumption that mere mortals could in no way pose any threat. Magda also educates Hugo about the dangers of eating fairy food. Nevertheless, at the end of the issue, for no real good reason... Hugo decides to completely and totally ignore this warning and eat a huge slice of fairy food cake. So, kids. On to issue number 10, which has a 
totally badass cover, promising some underwater battle action with something that looks like a giant squid got it on with a monster Venus flytrap. Like, the coloring work by Brennan Wagner on this cover is really spectacular. From the light filtering down through the water, the reflected light off of Kevin's lightning bolt T. Uh, I haven't gone through all the other covers of this run, but it strikes me as easily the most, I don't know, um, classically artistic piece so far. Instead of following the story beats and breaks, I'm going to stick with our characters and just review their complete arc from the issue. Really, little to no time passes with each pairing between their scene breaks, so it just makes sense to go right through them. I could see some people making the argument that this is a slow issue, and I'll get into that a bit later, but when you allow for the overall pacing of the series, really in this issue we have our different teams, if you will, getting ready for the inevitable confrontation that's coming. Things are ramping up, but not at the expense of the intimate tone of the overall series. We pick up in this issue with Magda sending out a mystical communication, or rather attempting to send one out, and the mix of Matt's art and Brennan's colors here really make this opening frame an attention grabber. Magda almost looks like she's in a crystal ball, her figure slightly warped by waves of power and refracted light. But she can't get a message out, as she says this place is, magically speaking, locked down tight. She uh, then gathers a bunch of random items and walks into the suite's living room, only to find, to her shock and alarm, that Hugo is sitting in the doorway that leads out to the endless pit. You know, that door in the room that opens into one of those endless red-walled shafts that Hugo nearly fell into the first time that they entered into the room. Hugo has this door wide open, and he's sitting in the doorway with his legs just dangling over the edge. I mean, it's the kind of thing that if your kid was doing it on a porch above a two-foot drop, you'd have no problem with it. But this is slightly deeper than two feet, by like an infinite distance. And one of the things I dig about this story is how the Matchstick-slash-Hunter family talk with each other. Kevin calls Miranda, Randa. Magda is such a mom, she calls Hugo Boichi, a familiar term of endearment. And if you can believe it, because I had to look, I thought, hey, maybe it had some ethnic origin. You know, where where does that come from? It's it's common, but, you know, where did it come from? And the internet has absolutely nothing to say about it. I can't think of the last time the internet had nothing to say about something anything. Anyway, Hugo assures Magda that he's being careful, but he shares with her a few things that he's noticed as he's been observing the bizarre space. He says he's heard flapping wings and other strange noises below them, like noises by living things. And high above them, there appears to be another door, where he sometimes has seen a blinking light like a door opening and closing. So those are both curious and worth tucking away for future reference. As Magda asks Hugo to come in before she has a heart attack, and after she praises his general powers of observation. Even in this environment, 
Magda is on point as a parent. So while he leaves the doorway, Hugo assures her, and this is important for a few reasons, I think, that he isn't scared of heights. And then he asks her, what are they going to do? Now, this comment is tucked away and easy to overlook. Hugo isn't afraid of heights. And that's awesome, because you know who was? And in fact, as of issue number four of this series, still is afraid of heights? His dad. Yeah, now, there's a whole subtopic possible right there on fear of heights. But for now, let's continue on as Magda informs Hugo that she has a few ideas about what they're going to do and that he's just given her a whole new idea. And it's good to see some character development on Hugo, just a bit as we see his fearlessness and his powers of observation, just as in the last issue we kind of saw a little bit of his recklessness. Before we move on from this, I want to recommend taking a look at these first two pages of this issue, because the artwork is really worth noticing. No, there aren't any splashy full-page action spreads, and in fact, the activity itself is rather mundane. But you really get a wide range of Matt Wagner's penciling styles on these two pages, at least his styles that we've seen in um, that we've seen in the Mage uh, in Mage. Now again, I don't necessarily have the right artistic vocabulary to describe this properly, but I'm going to do my best. The first frame again, uh, I'd already mentioned this. It has that energetic style. It's a bit warped due to the magical nature of what's happening in that frame, but it looks a little more raw and you know, like I said, energetic. The outlines of Magda's hair, body, and eyes are thick and strong almost exaggerating her presence. Now, the next two frames pull out, sacrificing some detail but not story. You can still see the worry and effort as Magda rubs her head in frame two, how she's kind of calm and not expecting anything especially surprising as she enters the room in frame three. Her eyes are almost closed or looking down. She's already talking to Hugo before she even comes into the room. And then we get that last frame on the first page, it's almost an old-school cartoony style as Magda looks up in surprise. More facial detail than we got in the last two frames, but not much. The next page takes this even further, with one panel emphasizing how small the characters are against the vastness of the pit by completely removing any detail other than the most basic shapes and colors. I mean, really emphasizing that big red wall that shifts from uh, from having some depth at the top of the frame to a pure color wash at the bottom. I, I really like how Brennan used that. And, and it even uses that classic Wagner silhouette style in one frame. And then in the very last frame of Magda talking, we get an intense level of detail in the line art. The smile slightly curved a bit higher to one side, the wavy details in the hair, as well as the colors right down to the light refracting off of her eyes and lower lip. Really, it's an amazing two pages to spend some time with. A little while later, Magda and Hugo are seated in the living room with an odd assortment of items in front of them. A hat, a blow dryer, five light bulbs, a baseball hat, an umbrella, a belt, some hotel sample size, bottles like you might get for shampoo, what looks like a long stick, a larger bottle-looking type item that, you know, kind of from afar looks like an oversized baby bottle. I can't really make it out. And what looks like two glasses lenses on the table. And finally, 
a pair of black high-top sneakers, and they're the style and color that Kevin Matchstick wore in The Hero Defined. So if you've been waiting for your Converse high-tops to show up, here they are. And Magda asks the question at the top of everyone's mind, which is, how do we escape? And this is great. She's not going to sit around waiting to be rescued. Magda is a powerful witch and a powerful woman, and she's going to do what she can to get the fuck out of this place. She points to the items arrayed before them and says that she believes that she can fashion an arsenal from the collection. Hugo is puzzled. These are really random items, but his mom assures him that uh, she's pretty sure she can infuse a charm into all of these things, so that when the time comes for them to break out, they will be armed to the teeth. And here Hugo gets more lessons about the magical world in which he's grown up, that while nothing that she can charm will be quite like Kevin's wild and thunderous Excalibur, she has a few surprises up her sleeve. But first things first, her familiar Chloe is dead, and a familiar is no mere animal, no house cat. Instead, they're actually a fairy servant bonded to its witch, to whom it attends and protects with its own fairy magic. And we see just what the idea was that Hugo's observations gave her. She has actually painted a glyph of invitation on the other side of the pit door, an invitation to any fairy living in that bizarre place who would wish to bind itself to a witch. This is interesting since it implies that although there may be fairies inside the Archeron Insurance Headquarters, the actual status of these beings may be largely agnostic when it comes to the Umbra Sprite and family. They're in the space, but they're not necessarily in service to, nor aligned with, the Umbra Sprite. We saw signs of this with the various challenges Kevin faced when making his way through the Styx Casino uh, at the end of Hero Discovered. The foes he met were certainly there to bar his path, but that seemed more due to their nature and affinity, their natural role, as it were, rather than being in the specific service of the Umbra Sprite. Sure enough, there's a scratch at the door. Magda chants an invitation, Hugo opens the door, and in comes this awesome-looking little dark fairy. Talon-like fingers and toes, glowing orange eyes, and wings that look like they're made from a cross between a ragged-veined green glass or, or some kind of leaf. Magda speaks another charm, binding the fairy to her, and in a cloud of pink-purple bubbles, it is transformed. And Magda says that while usually a familiar appears as an ordinary house cat for obvious reasons... Something a little more dramatic is in order here, and boy, is this dramatic. As Magda names the familiar Cleo, the dark fairy is transformed into a purple cat with these white lightning bolt markings on its head and big purple bat wings. It's really a, a striking image, and it occurs to me that you know, those wings might be the perfect kind of way for it to uh, to fly up and maybe see what's going on with that light that goes on and off higher up inside the pit. 
Anything's possible. Elsewhere in the building, Carol is trying to get past Olga to see the Umbra Sprite, who is apparently resting. Carol insists that they are spending a ton of money looking for the Fisher King, and she needs help coming up with another way to narrow the candidate pool. Now, unfortunately, we haven't got any idea of what is going on with the mission that the Thorns are running as a trap to catch the Fisher King. And again, they have no particular reason that I can tell to even believe the Fisher King is in San Francisco. But that aside, we have another stellar example of how most of the Thorns are just simply following the Umber Sprite's commands blindly. And there's a stalemate until... The Umbra Sprite interrupts the two arguing thorns and asks that Carol be let through and for Olga to leave. And the Umbra Sprite is just ragged. Its hair is a mess, limbs look gaunt, almost spindly, teeth are missing and uneven. Whatever went on with the Umbra Sprite when it was overwhelmed and broken into a mass of shadow snakes really took a toll. However, when Carol asks about stopping Kevin Matchstick, stopping the Pendragon from attacking, the Umbra Sprite insists that he must attack, and that some will surely perish. The Umbra Sprite insists that it had a vision of three coming together. Now, it is certain that these three are the Fisher King, Kevin Matchstick, and the unknown presence that is harassing the Umbra Sprite, and what with the Shadow Snakes... I'm pretty sure that this is a meal. And this is a wild twist. Three coming together. Certainly, Kevin is likely to arrive there at some point. Uh, the issue with the presence will come to a head. And I can see why the Umbra Sprite might think that the third is the Fisher King. But what if it's another confluence? The three titular mages, or maybe Magda, Isis, and Trish, the three witch sisters. I mean, the possibilities are endless. But the Umbra Sprite says that they are bound. One draws the other, draws the other. So perhaps the Fisher King draws Kevin, and Kevin draws this unknown presence? That might make sense if one of those presences, if that presence, is in fact Emil. And then the Umbra Sprite waves at a small painting, and it expands to almost wall size. It's, it's hard to tell, but I think this is the same painting that I was speaking uh, regarding in previous issues, uh, where it seems that it represents some being or force waiting to be summoned. But you can tell that the magic is already coming at a price. The Umbra Sprite's hand is red and smoking from the effort. And in a rare moment of introspection, the Umbra Sprite warns that the summoning it is about to undertake will be costly. And the Umbra Sprite isn't sure if it has the strength needed. I have to wonder, given certain vampiric overtones uh, throughout the series, and also I think at times um, you know, we've actually seen smaller dark fairies eaten by you know larger, more dangerous fairies, if something, even, even like a Gracklethorn, I doubt that, but if, if something needs to make a sacrifice to help the Umbra Sprite gain more strength. All right, with that, let's turn to the adventures of Kevin and Miranda as we find father and daughter, well, at the beach. And Miranda comments that this is not the beach that they usually go to. Kevin tells Miranda that they've come here to find something special for her, something to protect her, 
since she's going to be staying with him. Now remember, about five issues ago when Joe Fat returned and let Kevin know that he'd given up the nasty hunt in favor of collecting mystical treasures and artifacts, well, Kevin has come here to retrieve a talisman. Talisman. One hidden underwater by its former owner, a sea siren, or otherwise known as a moreau. So let's take a moment to discuss moreaus. In Irish folklore, they're pretty much mermaids. Um, there's more to it, but I'll get to it in a little bit later. Now, Magda's excitement here is cool. Her eyes light up as she asks him if they're looking for something like buried treasure. There's, there's no guarantee the talisman will still be there, but Kevin lights up a hunk of wood to use as a makeshift torch, which is an interesting utilitarian use of his power. And he asks Miranda to help him, since it's possible that the Moreau may have left a hex or a curse to protect the talisman. And he's asking her just to keep an eye out for anything she senses or sees, like a pattern, like a, like a magic spell. And they enter the grotto, and it's another one of these wonderful full-bleed pages that we, we get occasionally in the series. And this is a really nice turn, because we really get to see Miranda be a character in her own right, just as we get to see Hugo demonstrate his powers of observation elsewhere in this issue. Miranda tells her dad that she doesn't really see any signs of magic in the grotto, that they're easy to see, even if someone tries to hide them. And in fact, her mom says that she's a real good spell spotter. And similar to how we see Magda praise Hugo elsewhere in the issue, Kevin doesn't let the current situation keep him from being a good parent, letting Miranda know that both he and Magda are proud of her. It's a nice touch. It keeps this grounded as a family tale amid this supernatural and superheroic events. This is not your typical capes and cowls. It is not the street-level fighting action we saw in Hero Discovered and Hero Defined. This is really something completely different. So at no point, especially as we see the parents and the kids broken up and we're getting more time with the kids, we really get to see them interacting as a family unit, albeit broken up into these two different groups. One more thing I want to touch on about these uh, two pages before Kevin dives into the water. Uh, when discussing how patterns are easy to see, Miranda likens them to the, the tinkies that Magda used to do for her. We saw an example of that in issue number two, where Magda makes a bunch of stars and I think some other things like moons, crescent moons, and that appear in Miranda's bedroom to help her go to sleep. And Miranda pauses after saying this and then adds, when I was little. And while it's easy to just see Miranda as a little girl in this, it's neat to see how Miranda has clearly grown up. Now, she's still in those years when even just a year brings a lot of changes, a lot of growth and a lot of changes in appearance. But also, she's been through a lot in the last few days. Maybe weeks at the very most, but it feels like days. I especially dig the um, the look on her face in the inset panel when Kevin and, uh, and she enter the grotto, and when she's making the observation about the Tinkies. The two panels are very similar. Miranda is looking off to her right, but in one panel... 
She looks, she really looks like she's just sizing up the space they're going into. Is it spooky? Is it okay? And in the other panel, her lips are twisted up just a little bit, and she looks more reflective, like she's thinking back. Now, no doubt, some of this comes from the context and the dialogue, but frankly, a lot of it is from Brennan Wagner's colors helping to emphasize her facial expression. And with that, Kevin dives into the water. Miranda sitting on the shore, singing her great big girl song. And as Kevin goes under the water, the artwork and the coloring in this issue really goes to another level. The the light filtering through the water, the bubbles in Kevin's wake, the rippling reflection of light off of Kevin's skin, all of these leading up to Kevin finding and opening a treasure chest. Um, so again, just... But before I go on to what happens next, just amazing coloring work being done on those pages. And as Kevin opens up the treasure chest, that's the perfect time for the treasure's guardian to arrive on another beautiful full bleed page. And as I as I indicated earlier when we talked about the cover, this is some huge tentacled sea snake with its mouth wide open revealing rows upon rows of long fang-like teeth and what looks like ten glowing eyes. Uh, again, another another great creature design. Much like the creature design on the ferry in the Archeron headquarters, throughout this entire series we've really seen these mystical, nasty, dark fairy, whatever you want to call them, you know, the different categories of mythic, folkloric, and, and monsters really go through the roof. But as big and nasty as this creature is, Kevin really makes short work of it. He grabs a starfish, infuses it with his power, and throws it right into the sea serpent's mouth. And then in a manner similar to ways we've seen him use his power from a distance, Kevin says, boom, causing that charged object to, well explode with power inside the beast. Now, we don't see this, no. What we see is actually pretty comical in a slapsticky kind of way, with Miranda sitting on the shore, singing her song, until an eruption of water just bursts up, completely soaking her. Kevin emerges shortly to join the just totally drenched Miranda, and she notes that not only did she get, you know, did she get soaked, but the light went out as well. Now, this is interesting. Obviously, the water didn't put it out since it was a magical charge illuminating the wood. No, instead, Kevin says that he had to use that spark elsewhere. So we get an interesting bit of insight into how Kevin's power works. He can't spread his power, apparently, among multiple objects at the same time. Or if he can, there may be a quantity of power issue. I mean, we've seen him fling individually charged leaves as weapons off of a branch, but they and the branch, you know, that they were on, were all charged as one item before he flung them at his enemies. I'd also like to think that, I also think it's interesting that he refers to it as a, as a spark, which is a term I believe the Umbra Sprite has used regarding Kevin's powers in the past, especially in uh, Hero Discovered. Kevin has emerged uh, gripping something in his hand. It's hard to tell just what it is but part of it is quite shiny. 
And as the two head out of the grotto, we get more dad-daughter stuff as Miranda complains that her shoes are squishy and Kevin replies that his butt's all squishy. This is a cute, silly moment, but it also evokes a memory of Kevin, Joe Fat, Kirby Hero, and Wally Utt diving into a pool in The Hero Defined. Well, I mean, everybody else dives into it or cliff, cliff dives into it. Kevin climbs down the cliff face, breaking hand and footholds into the rock on his way down, similar to a method he used in the Styx's Red Pit Abyss in The Hero Discovered. In, uh, in The Hero Defined, I seem to recall him complaining about squishy socks. So squishy socks, squishy clothes, or squishy shoes, squishy butts. After the, true di- uh, after the two uh, dry off, Kevin warns Miranda that uh, wherever they are about to go is likely to be dangerous, and while she's with him, he wanted to have some extra protection for her. He tells her how Moreau's would use magic cloaks to disguise themselves when they wanted to pass among humans, and this cloak looks fantastic. It's a dark sea green cloth with uh, little shimmering elements on it, and purple and blue scales or seashells decorating the top third. He tells her it's a concealment cloak and it will let her appear as anything she can imagine. And before he can finish, Miranda transforms into this fantastic butterfly princess costume. She's running around in swirls like she's flying. And this panel is, just for me, was a laugh out loud moment. Miranda is spinning around going, Wee! And Kevin is just standing there stunned for a moment going, Okay. But Miranda's got a really good grip on how to use this. And she quickly transforms into an old lady disguise as well. So just what is this cloak? Is it some random creation by Matt Wagner to forward the plot? Well, the answer lies in the folklore surrounding Miro's. Um, and it's a little bit of a confusing answer, uh, to me at least. This, this entire item that we're going to talk about seems to have as one of its primary um, uses, it really presupposes that Moreau's will come up from the water and engage with humans Um, They don't seem to be above having relations with humans, so forth and so on. And this is really more about them being able to return from whence they came. There's folklore variations about this item being taken from them and trapping them on the human, you know, with, with the humans if they don't have it. So what is this? What is this thing I'm talking about? Moreau's have a special hat. It's called a Kahulin Drieth. Now, this hat allows them to dive beneath the waves, and it's said that if they lose the cap, they lose the power to return beneath the water. Now, for a fairy who is half human and half fish, this seems like a strange fashion requirement to allow them to, I don't know, essentially exercise their primary distinct trait, which is being a fairy that lives under the water. Some people who have written about the uh, Kahulin Drieth added um, elements that the hat is covered with feathers. But 
This seems to be largely based on a misunderstanding of a comment made by an earlier folklore commentator. It is worth noticing, though, and noting that since uh, the cloak that Matt has created for the talisman variation appears to have almost feather-like decorations on it, those scales, those sparkly items at the top, uh, kind of almost look reminiscent of, you know, really tiny feathers uh, as well. Um, so why is Matt Wagner's version of this a cloak and not a hat? And how does it work as a concealment since the original item was tied more to allowing land-visiting Moreaus to return to the sea? Well, the Scottish counterpart of the Moreaus cap was a removable skin, described as like the skin of a salmon, but brighter and more beautiful and very large. It was, you know, worn by the maid of the wave. One researcher had mentioned that a Moreau may leave her outer skin behind to transform into other beings more magical and beauteous. And yet another researcher noted that the Irish Moreau's device was her cap, quote, covering her entire body, as opposed to the uh, Scottish maid of the wave who had her salmon skin. So ultimately all of this is that while the details may have changed over time, or they might vary based on religion, uh, region, and culture to a degree, there are definite elements of a cloak and magical transformation tied to this overall concept in Miro mermaid folklore. Um, it seems to me Matt has clearly looked at the source material and reinterpreted it for use in his own universe. Now, Miranda has this mermaid's concealment cloak. She's testing it out, and Kevin turns his back to her for a moment. He's closing the back of the truck, telling her that if she's really trying to hide from something scary, she'll want to blend into the surroundings so that nothing will notice her. And he turns back from the car, and Miranda's gone. There's nothing there, a street sign and a fire hydrant. And it takes him a moment to realize, but Magda has disguised herself as a fire hydrant, totally innocuous and blending into the surroundings. So as I said, she has a really good grip on how to use the cloak. With that, the scene ends uh, with Kevin mentioning to her that it's getting late and they should grab some dinner. And really, that's it for this issue. Uh, the issue actually ends with Magda summoning and the striking reveal of her, uh, of her new familiar. But here we are. Five issues left in the series, six if you count the double-sized finale as two, and there are a lot of dangling plot threads that need to be resolved. Where is the third mage? Where is the Fisher King? What's going on with the questing beast? Who was the imp with the beast? Is Kevin going to encounter other heroes? Are we going to see what's happening at the mission? Who is this mysterious presence? What does the Umbra Sprite have to summon? If you think about it, only three big muscle movements happened in this issue. The summoning of the familiar, obtaining the concealment cloak, and the return of the Umbra Sprite with some dire prophecy. And I am loving the pace of this story, but it's so leisurely at times that I really wish that the run were longer. It's a, it's a greedy desire, but... This would really allow the story to go wide as well as deep 
while taking this slower pace. Um, it just feels like with us coming into the end of this story, there's a lot to wrap up. And at the current pace, um, I'm sure I'm sure Matt's got a plan or that obviously it all comes together. But it seems like at this pace, things are going to need to speed up really quickly. One last note. I was thinking about the Umbra Sprites headquarters being in San Francisco. Now, Mage the Hero Discovered took place in Philadelphia, Matt Wagner's stomping grounds when he wrote it. Hero Defined covers a time when he was in Canada, and much of that series is set in Montreal. Hero Denied naturally takes place in Oregon around Portland. Now, I don't know precisely where San Francisco fits into Matt Wagner's personal or professional history, but I do think it's interesting uh, that another comic by Matt did take place in San Francisco. In fact, the storyline involved a mother on a quest to rescue her kidnapped son. That was, in fact, the event that kicked off all the action in the Grendel comic series featuring Christine Spar, I think Devil's Legacy. So it's kind of wild, purposeful or not, to see that both of Matt Wagner's signature properties have had main characters' sons who have been abducted, and the trail ultimately leads to San Francisco. Um, what that says about San Francisco, I don't know. Might just like drawing the city. So that's it for this issue. Visit the website or go to the show notes for links to various reviews. The, uh, the release of issue number 11 is right around the corner, so to help get this episode out ASAP, I'm not going to discuss any reviews about the uh, about this issue of the hero denied as I as I typically do I put my notes together for the episode without having read any reviews and then I will usually read them make some commentary about them put some links in um but uh I'm not going to not going to do that this time once this recording is done, I'll gather a collection of them and share links. There are some reviewers out there who are always worth checking out for their insights and comments, so be sure to visit and read those reviews. Links will be in the podcast notes and on the MageHeroDescribe.com website. I am going to take a moment to at least give a shout-out to the fans featured in this issue's Incantations letter column. As I mentioned in a past episode... Letter columns are one of the first things that get dumped from reprints and collections. So, you know, unless you get the original issues, well, you miss out on one of the best part of the Mage comics, the back and forth between fans and Matt Wagner. So, I'll go through these fairly quickly, but I, I felt it would be remiss not to. First off, Brian. No last name given. He writes in about his Mage experience in actually meeting Matt back when uh, Hero Discovered was first published. He asks about Matt's series, The Aerialist, and if it was, or if it will ever be, completed. Now, I think I've read or heard Matt discuss this in recent interviews, but Matt replies that for a variety of reasons, The Aerialist will probably never be finished. However, some ideas that he had intended for a third phase of that project may be part of an all-new project. However, it's too early to go into any details. Next, Brian Groh shares a great story about how he discovered the Mage series, his life's changes since that time, and how he happily discovered The Hero Denied on the shelves of a comic store by chance. 
Brian also shares a detail easily overlooked in the Mage Hero Defined issue number five, and noted that there's a scene in the kitchen where Kevin is wearing shoes and then suddenly not wearing shoes. Uh, Matt replies about the challenges of consistency in a comic book art and how small details can even slip past very experienced artists. And I seem to recall in The Hero Defined, Matt even had a contest around a similar artwork snafu involving the color of Kevin Matchstick's eyes. Kenny Lung writes in and starts off discussing how reading the letter column in The Hero Denied has given him more of an appreciation for the stories. He then breaks down a variety of uh, Matt Wagner's different works and what he's gained from each. For instance, that Sandman Mystery Theater taught him what a true adult relationship could be like, how he had enjoyed the style of Grendel and the grungy violence of War Child. And he also mentions that Madame Xanadu was another surprise and the reasons for that. I have to admit, I missed Madame Xanadu, and that comment alone is enough to make me want to check it out. He closes his letter mentioning how Kevin's growth in the story has led to him realizing that you can't end a story in the same place that you started. And that's something that Matt confirms in his reply, that it's a mantra that he's embraced throughout his career as a storyteller. And I think that it's an important thing to keep in mind when people might be tempted to compare Hero Denied to either Hero Discovered or Hero Defined. As I've, I've said a few times, this isn't a cape and cowl soap opera with a revolving door for scenery-chewing supervillains. I mean, hell, the primary villain has been the same throughout the whole series. I mean, allowing for a minor detour in The Hero Defined, but let's be real. Emil is the Umber Sprite's son, so the lineage of evil of the villain remains consistent. The core threat. And the other antagonist in this series has remained consistent as well. And, and by that I mean Kevin's own learning curve, his own growth, his denial and resistance uh, in Discovered, his arrogance and assumption of leadership in Defined, and in Denied, uh, his abandonment of his duty, his struggle to balance family, and the tug of his heroic calling, all of that. Kevin Matchstick is growing up through this series. And unlike Happily Ever After stories, Life just doesn't end when the adventure is finished. It goes on and on, and we keep growing, and we keep changing. This series could never be, should never be, like the hero discovered. Okay, so, back to the letters. We also hear from uh, Joe Gonzalez, who asks about Matt's consistency in writing and drawing Mage's characters across the different series. And whether Matt will be returning to Grendel after Mage is completed. And yes, Matt confirms that there is more Grendel coming in the future after the hero denied raps. Last of all, Jeffrey Morris writes in, and he has sent two photos of Mage sketches that he and his wife got back when the hero discovered was still being published. In his reply, Matt guesses that these pieces, one of Edsel and the other of Mirth, were probably from a signing during the 1985 cross-country mage promotional tour. That was 26 appearances across 13,000 miles in two months. Some other uh, letter column writers have mentioned, well, at least one other writer who I can recall had mentioned meeting Matt on that promotional tour, and there are some random photos from it scattered around on the internet. I'll see if I can gather them up and post them on the Mage Hero Described Instagram account. It sounds like it was quite the experience. 
And that's it. That's this week's, uh, this month's episode of Mage, uh, the Hero Described podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number 11. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, I'm working on images and scenes uh, being worked into the site from Instagram, but they're not uh, behaving nicely since uh, for Instagram I like to put a spoiler image warning in front of the images that uh, that I'm actually sharing and commenting on. Uh, so you might just be better off visiting the Mage Hero Described account at Instagram. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast gallery or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.